0: This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Global Rescue, the ABA's official emergency medical and evacuation provider. Global Rescue is a worldwide leader in field rescue, medical evacuation, and security extraction services for more than a decade, and their industry-leading network of personnel and resources are on call to provide assistance or evacuation from nearly anywhere on Earth. When ABA members purchase a Global Rescue membership through the association, a portion of the proceeds will go to helping ABA programs and conservation. For more information, go to www.globalrescue.com partners slash ABA. Welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and we have a a really fascinating episode this time around. Uh, I'll talk about that a little later, but first I want to start off by saying a few things about a bird conservation birding access issue that has been sort of making the rounds among birders for the last couple weeks. Uh, We at the ABA, along with many in the birding community, have been made aware, thanks to an article in the uh, Texas Observer, of a plan to construct part of a proposed border wall through Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge in the lower Rio Grande Valley of Texas. This wall would be about three miles long, more or less, along the levee, which runs along the, the northern quarter of the refuge itself. Speaking institutionally here, uh, we are aware of sort of the fraught nature of this issue. The The border wall is part of this whole national discussion we've had about immigration over, well, decades, truthfully. Um, it's not the place of the ABA to make any statements about national immigration policy. There are other organizations, heck, there are there are other ABAs who should be your go-to for this sort of thing. I'm looking at you lawyers, not you bakers. Uh, But we do have something to say about this section of a wall in this specific place, a place that means a great deal to many, many birders in the ABA area. Uh, Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge is unique in the refuge system for a lot of reasons. For starters, it's, its target audience is nature lovers, not hunters, uh, even though the refuge itself was purchased nearly entirely with duck stamp money. That's that's not an exaggeration. 94% of the funds that were used to purchase the land that is now Santa Ana uh, came from duck stamp funds. And uh, consider that a reminder to purchase your duck stamps through the ABA, aba.org slash stamp. The birding there is terrific, as we all know. Over 400 species recorded, including some notable records of neotropic vagrants attracted to the huge trees and extensive wetlands on the refuge. Another noteworthy fact, nearly half of all the butterfly species ever recorded in the United States have been recorded at Santa Ana, so so its diversity is legendary. And it's it is the fate of that diversity that is that is our primary concern here, with sort of a secondary concern about whether birders would be cut out from enjoying that diversity should a wall be built, you know, along the levee that you know cuts away the visitor center, the parking lot, and a fair bit of the refuge from the rest of the refuge. A twenty-foot concrete barrier on its own will, without doubt, inhibit wildlife's ability to move around the the landscape. Um, and we know this because when Hurricane Ingrid struck the valley in 2013, it caused a lot of flooding in the area, such that many of the parks along the Rio Grande were inundated with water. Uh, Santa Ana itself was was mostly underwater for the better part of four months. And when the water finally subsided, uh, people would find the remains of Texas tortoises lined up against existing border walls as the animals were, were unable to get past the barrier. Obviously, that is perhaps the the most obvious illustration of why these walls can be harmful, but um, there's a reason to believe that lots of other lots of other animals are impacted as well. More, there's the worry that the immediate wall corridor is not the only part of the refuge to be affected. Uh, the plan calls for lights, roads, towers. All of this will need rights of way and sight lines down to the border to the river. it is It is unclear how much of the refuge will need to be. We need to be destroyed to accomplish this. So we are urging birders to get involved. We have on the ABA blog a post by Ellen Paul, which outlines the appropriations, authorizations, process, and offers opportunities for birders to... Yeah, I don't want to say gum up the works, but certainly apply pressure where pressure can be applied here. Uh, There are also local groups in the valley mobilizing to make their voices heard. You can support them. And we will continue to share opportunities for birders to do that because we know that this hits home for a lot of you as it does for us. And in the meantime, we want to hear your Santa Ana stories. So many birders have visited the valley, and specifically Santa Ana, Uh, we want to hear about it. I'll share my Santa Ana story in the third part of the episode, but please let us know in the comments for this episode, or in the comments for the post, my Santa Ana stories on the ABA blog. But first, something different. The Arctic is warming, that is very clear. Uh, But what does it mean for seabirds who suddenly have the ability to pass over the top of the earth and find new oceans? Biologist and researcher Seabird McKeon, and yes, his name is really Seabird, joins me to talk about the incredible possibilities. That's after this week's Rare (laughs) Birds. bird focus for the middle of July 2017. Thanks Noah. South Florida is once again on the rare bird radar with the discovery of a singing, black-faced grassquit, an ABA Code 4 bird, at a campground in Everglades National Park, west of Miami. That record of a singing male was quickly followed up with a report of a female, and the two birds were soon recorded nest-building, I believe, and, and hit me up on Twitter if I'm wrong, that this is the first record of the species breeding in the ABA area, so that's pretty exciting. Further, at the same park, Everglades rangers had been keeping an eye on a breeding pair of western species. In Dallas in the same campground. So, if South Florida didn't look enough like the Bahamas after the spring, it is really looking like the Bahamas now. Out in California, a dark phase wedge tailed shearwater was seen near shore by a pelagic out of Half Moon Bay south of San Francisco. There are fewer than 12 records of the species in the continental ABA area, though it does nest in some numbers in Hawaii. Notably, those Hawaiian birds are light phase birds, so this individual did not come from there. Dark phase wedge tails nest as near as the, and I'm probably massacring this, the Revilla Hijedo Islands off West Mexico. But those are summer breeding birds, and the extensive molt on this bird suggests that it is not from those summer breeding populations and may have traveled from the wedge-tailed shearwater colonies around New Zealand and Australia. A couple first records to report, one that I neglected last time. I talked about the two firsts in Alaska, the Pied Weed Ear and the Northern Parula in the last episode, but there was a third that I overlooked. A Rock Wren And Gustavus is in Alaska first, making three firsts for that state in the month of July. And from Indiana, a wandering tattler was seen along the shore of Lake Michigan in Michigan City. This primarily West Coast shorebird has a tendency to move around, though it does always seem surprising when they do. Uh, interestingly, Michigan City, Indiana has a history of extraordinary shorebird records a lesser sand plover was present there in 2013 it's funny how rare birds tend to find the same sites over and over again this was a little bit of the rare bird news for this period if you love reading about vagrants and want to hear more check out the aba blog every friday morning if you can't even wait that long join the aba's rare bird alert facebook group at facebook.com groups slash aba rare My guest today is Seabird McKeon. He's a research associate with the Smithsonian Institute, uh, working on marine life. He is the lead author of a paper titled Melting Barriers to Faunal Exchanges Across Ocean Basins, published in 2015 in the journal Global Change Biology. We're going to talk about that phenomenon today, how it applies to seabirds in particular and birders. Uh, See, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. It's nice to be here. So the, so the gist of this research is essentially that these animals are, are switching oceans because the Arctic is, is melting and providing them with this, this avenue to do so.
1: Is that right? That's correct. It sure seems as though in recent years with the melting of the Northwest Passage, which a lot of folks might be familiar with, and even the Northeast Passage, which uh, folks in North America tend to think less about, That's the one that's over Asia, That's correct. That's the one that's going all the way over Asia. But with the melting of those passages, the seaways, the open water has become available to marine birds and mammals in a way that it hasn't been for about 3 million years. Uh, So we're looking at the potential for pretty drastic changes. And I'm excited about what is happening. And I wanted folks to be able to... Uh, know about it so that they could be looking for new arrivals.
0: So um, what exactly does this mean from a practical point of view? What, what species are we seeing moving back and forth through these new openings?
1: Well, it's interesting. So birders have been recording vagrants for a long time, right? We, uh, we've been picking out the strays, and, and anyone who's been paying attention knows that birds have wings, they travel. But what we're looking at potentially are not only new species, but increased numbers starting up. So for example, in the last couple of years, we've had uh, ancient murlets showing up on the east coast of the US. And ancient murlets do uh, have a pattern of vagrancy, kind of like long-billed murlets do as well, uh, but we're starting to see increased numbers. and. Ancient murlets, if you think about the type of lifestyle that they have, they're, they're eating little things, and they don't require big stretches of open water. So what might make for their vagrant patterns is that they can take advantage of small patches of open water. So as the open water increases, we're getting things that require more open water. And I, I think a lot of us in the ABA and active birders know about the gannet, The gannet in California. Yeah, the Farallon gannet. Yeah. Yes. So we have a bird, you know, a gannet is the size of a goose and and eats by diving for fish from, you know, 30 feet above the water surface. This is a bird that requires open water. And what is neat about this is that this individual gannet currently hanging out in California and has been for the last several years. (laughs) Yeah. Um... (laughs) So that's the first observation of a gannet off of California in, in observed history. If this was something that could, could make a tropical passage, um, you would think that we would have had one before now. Also exciting about the gannet is that it gives us insight into how long-lived some of these seabirds are.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a good point.
1: And so if, if the gannet has been hanging out with us for the last five years or so, if that's surviving, it just needs to wait until the next group of gannets makes it over the top. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think big changes are coming and I'm excited about it.
0: Yeah. So um, are there any other factors that might affect these sort of species turning up in these unfamiliar oceans? I know, you know, the North Atlantic is much warmer than the North Pacific, uh, at least on the areas that are closest to the North American continent.
1: Yeah, so temperature certainly does make a big difference, as does prey availability, right? So the, the things that these animals eat uh, very widely, and so we're not entirely sure if everybody's going to find what they need when they get to their new stopover. If you think about something like parakeet auklet, it eats a lot of gelatinous zooplankton, so things like jellyfish and tinofores. Um, and I'm not sure if those species are things that you can find in the Atlantic. So maybe that, hmm. maybe that bird is not going to make it,
0: or at least, it, or at least it won't make it long enough for for birders to to note its note its presence. You know, it could very well get over. But... Perhaps
1: it won't make it in terms of establishing in the Atlantic. Right, right. But a lot of our seabirds are generalists. A lot of our seabirds are. Eating fish within a certain size class more than a certain species of fish. And so they they might fit in surprisingly well.
0: Right. Like the Gannet. Like the Gannet. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, this ancient murrelet. you you bring up the ancient murrelet earlier. This is the second year that one has been in Maine, and there was a report of a site record of one in Virginia, possibly the same bird moving with you know, flocks of dove key or puffin up and down the coast. How long could it be here? <laughs> it might be interesting to see. Again, these,
1: these individuals can be long lived. Um, and so if they're, if they're finding an environment where they can fit in, uh, there is a potential for them to just wait it out and see who shows up. And that actually brings up a, uh, an interesting point too, and that's that seabirds really are explorers. They show up in strange places. They travel long distances routinely. And so when it comes to global change, I think we can really look at seabirds as, as not just indicators of what's going on, but also explorers. They're going to be looking for new areas to breed and potentially finding them in new ocean basins.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it makes you wonder about the, um, the recent spate of uh, Swinho's storm petrel in the North Atlantic, there was the one in uh, the one in North Carolina, obviously, where they've been seen in the ABA era before. But it, right in that time, there were a number, like, I think Portugal had one, and Guyana had one. Um, and there was, you know, reading up about Swinhoe Storm Petrel in, in the wake of this this sighting in North Carolina, you know, there have been birds that have been trapped in, in Madeira, you know, in those seabird colonies. It could be Really easy for a bird like that to disappear in those large storm petrel colonies and not be seen until there's sort of a, a critical mass of them. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I've got
1: to say, so I was on board the stormy petrel tube for-
0: oh, Right, you were there. Yeah. yeah that's and right. And
1: that was, that was a life bird for me. I was really excited to see Hose, And it really got me thinking as well, is, where is this bird going to show up? Like you, like you bring up, where we've seen most of them has been over towards Madeira and kind of the more tropical Atlantic islands off of Europe and Africa. But in looking at the the oceanographic conditions that are associated with the breeding islands of Swinhoes off of northern Korea and Siberia, Sea of Japan, it looks as though some of the the storm petrel breeding islands in the Bay of Fundy, so off of Canada and Maine, are actually a better match. And what I don't know is if people are actively looking for them. Right. So in part, that's why I was really excited to speak with you because there are a couple things that I think birders in the ABA area could be paying attention for um, as we get to peak summer and the, the lowest points of ice at each time of year. So we're coming up on... You know, well, I guess today is the solstice, right? That's right. Yeah, we're recording on the solstice, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So we'll be going into the lowest points of ice in the next two months. So something that that shows up on an awful lot of Atlantic pelagic trips in the late summer are sooty shearwaters. And we get lots and lots of them. You know, they can be abundant. And this is a bird that shows up both in the Atlantic and in the Pacific, but what doesn't show up in the Atlantic normally, or what we haven't seen yet, have been short-tailed shearwaters. So a super similar bird. I mean, this is, a, this is a challenge, right? Yes, very much. But I think with it's also, it's also perhaps one of the most likely birds to make it over the top. So as people are going out on their whale watches and their pelagics from New England and from Atlantic Canada... Just have it in the back of your mind that short tailed shearwater is actually a possibility for the North Atlantic now.
0: Hmm. And take a lot of photos of (laughs) sooty
1: shearwaters. (laughs) Yeah, take a lot of photos.
0: You know, birds, we've been talking a lot about birds. They're especially good at at dispersing this way. Uh, But what other taxa might people on on either coast be on the lookout for?
1: Okay, well, so there's certainly a marine mammal pattern here too. And one of the the real interesting uh, taxa that are showing up are gray whales. So we used to have a population of gray whales in the North Atlantic. How long ago? Uh, about 200 years ago, uh, 300 years ago, really? 500 years ago. I did not know that. Wow! And um, just, like, just like Pacific gray whales, Atlantic gray whales were largely coastal. And so they were hunted um, by both first peoples of both North America and Europe. And then uh, later European settlers also took their share of, of gray whales. And so gray whales were the first, and, uh, the first large mammal to go extinct from the North Atlantic. But a couple years ago, one showed up off of Israel, one showed up off of Spain,
0: really? one showed up off of Namibia. So, the, so is the speculation that they are coming through the Northwest or Northeast passage or that they are coming up kind of through Antarctica, through the Southern Hemisphere? And then- The up? honest answer is we don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah. But we do know that there has been periods of connectivity between the Atlantic population of gray whales and the Pacific population of gray whales in the past, and that connectivity appeared to be going through the northern passages. (laughs) Uh, So as we're reopening these passages, you should start thinking about, well, what is going to show up? And gray whales are going to be interesting. Gray whales are going to be interesting because they're a benthic feeding baleen whale, right? So they're actually using short baleen to filter out muddy bay waters. Yeah, so they'll be, they'll be easy to see if they're, if they're present. They'll be easy to see, and they're liable to be uh, making impacts in ways that we didn't expect. Uh, huh. These things feed mostly on big ghost shrimp, uh, so l- relatively large benthic crustaceans in the Pacific Ocean. So, what lives in, in muddy bays on the Atlantic side? We don't have ghost shrimp. We do have things like blue crab.
0: Blue crab, yeah, that would be my first guess, yeah.
1: It's a big fishery in the That's East Coast. That's a big
0: fishery. <laughs> How these
1: animals that are changing ocean basins are going to impact the ocean basins is another open issue.
0: Yeah. Well, that gets me to, to my next question. You know, what What are the consequences for this sort of exchange, we we talked about gray whales, but what is the consequences from the bird perspective? You know, what are the potential uh, ramifications for North Atlantic seabirds if these Pacific birds are starting to come over? Well, they're not in, in numbers that are really going to affect things now, but down the road, perhaps. Yeah, I think I think it's largely an open question. We can
1: speculate wildly, which is, can be a lot yeah. of fun to do. That's what I'm asking you <laughs> to do, essentially. <laughs> uh, well, let's think about our ganet. Gannets, Gannets can eat up to, what, three pounds of fish a day. And so just in terms of, of their breeding colonies, let's say, let's say our buddy out in California manages to set up a breeding colony. That's, you're looking at a large amount of nutrient transfer from rich ocean waters onto, onto the land in the tradition of you know large seabird colonies all over the world. So there's going to be a nutrient transfer impact. There's going to be potentially a fisheries impact in terms of birds making it into the Atlantic, we actually have a higher diversity of seabirds uh, that are likely to transfer from the Pacific to the Atlantic than, the, than vice versa. And so if we think about things like fork-tailed, fork-tailed storm petrels, they could certainly make it over. They could certainly start breeding in the North Atlantic. One interesting bird of size that was recorded from the Atlantic not too long ago it's actually short-tailed albatross, or Stellar's albatross. Wow. They were recorded breeding on Bermuda and North Carolina not too long ago. And so that's a big bird. The recolonization of, of the North Atlantic by albatross is something that, that is certainly possible. Uh, just this week, there's a yellow-nosed albatross cruising around the North Atlantic. Now, that's not an inter-basin transfer. It's coming up from the South Atlantic, probably. But these birds will wander for
0: 30 years in the North Atlantic in some cases. Yeah. I, I know that's always been sort of the the suspicion on albatrosses in the North Atlantic where, um, you know, here in North Carolina where I live, there were like three years where we had a, a yellow-nosed albatross that was found and within a week every year sitting on the beach at Cape Hatteras. You know, that's probably the same bird cruising circuits around the North Atlantic coming back every year. At roughly the same time, are these the same birds or are these multiple birds? That's always been sort of an open question. Always
1: an open question. I think there was one in a colony of gannets somewhere off of off of Britain, uh, but they called him the King of the Gannets, and he <laughs> he came back year after year. But eventually, some of these birds are going to find mates. That's that's potentially one little bright spark in this grand experiment that really we've started without intending to. Yeah, so there might be some interesting population biology. There might be a little bit of, of new colonization. And I think that's also a good reason for folks who are paying attention to Atlantic islands. And we all know what rats and cats do to seabird populations on islands. If you have areas that are not currently occupied by seabirds, that doesn't mean that it always has to be that way. I think rat and cat eradication from Atlantic islands is going to be a great thing to undertake, even if you don't mm-hmm. currently have storm petrels or petrels or shearwaters nesting. They're quite good at finding They're those good islands. Good at finding those islands. So get them ready. I think that's that's something that I'm I'm trying to do is really advocate for. Get rid of the cats and rats from all
0: of these islands so that our marine birds have a chance. Thanks, C. I, I really appreciate you joining me to talk about this. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. And birders on both coasts should definitely be on the lookout for unusual pelagic birds this summer and future summers. Uh, once again, Seabird McKeon is a marine biologist for the Smithsonian Institute. The paper on this topic was published in Global Change Biology in 2015. You can also find C on The Naturalist Podcast, which he hosts with Lev Fried. It's a lot of fun. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again. Thank you. I first visited Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge in 1992. I was, I was 12 years old. My grandparents were winter Texans in Mission, some of the thousands of middle-class, midwestern snowbirds who come to the valley every winter to escape the cold weather in Minnesota and Michigan and Iowa and, in, in the case of my grandparents, Kansas. My family would go and visit them in the spring when my sister and I were out of school, and as a kid with an abiding interest in nature from a family that shared that interest, the various parks of South Texas and the incredible birds there were, were absolutely a priority. Uh, at the time of my first visit, though, birds were probably you know, tertiary on a list that included bugs and snakes and turtles, but with the prospect of chachalacas and green jays and altamir orioles were definitely intriguing the thing you realize when you go to the valley is that it doesn't look anything like a wonderland for nature. It's, it's hot, the air is hazy, the landscape is full of strip malls and manicured palm trees and hospitals and RV parks. My grandparents lived at one of those parks and, and while no one would mistake it for a hot spot, the Inca Doves and the Vermilion flycatchers there were new for me and a hint of what was, what was just down the road. The first place that we went on that first visit was Santa Ana, though Benson Park was technically closer, but this was back in the trailer loop at Benson was filled with fifth wheels and campers with those elaborate feeding stations. It was cool, and the birding there was easy, but it, but it wasn't anyone's idea of wild. And my dad and I wanted wild, and Santa Ana fit the bill. Also, at the time, I was sort of obsessed with Pete Dunn's book, The Feather Quest, and I really liked his characterization of Santa Ana more than the part about Benson, so that probably played a role too. I remember that first trip, or at least the part when we pulled into the parking lot as soon as the gate opened. We were the first ones there, all alone as the sky lightened and the couch's kingbirds and the chachalacas began to call loudly. And we, we didn't make it out of that parking lot for about 45 minutes because of a buff-bellied hummingbird that was working the flowers in front of the visitor center. And that's before we even made it to the trails to Pintail Lake, where I saw my first Sora, and down the Rio Grande, where you could see Mexico across the river. And I still assume that there's a ringed kingfisher there because I saw it that first time. I've been back many times, and, and each visit is equally magical. Last time I was there, I think it was. Back in 2011, at the Lower Rio Grande Valley Bird Festival, I went to look for a hook-billed kite, which was regular there, which is still a bird that I have not seen in South Texas and a reason to go back. Santa Ana is definitely one of the most wild-feeling places in an area that is increasingly agricultural and especially commercial. It's important for that reason, if for no other. It's probably too simple to say that Santa Ana made me a birder. That is a journey that took me to a hundred different places, many of which were, were closer to home. But I think it was the first place where I really felt like a birder. In a lot of hobbies, culture and community matter. Feeling the part matters. And it's hard not to feel the part when you're walking the trails at Santa Ana, surrounded by the calls of white-tipped dove and, and the flash of buff-billed hummingbirds. It's a cultural experience that a lot of us have shared, and and a lot of you probably feel as frustrated about this wall as I do, so I hope that you will will take some time to share your stories on the blog. Uh, We'll have all the relevant links in the show notes. It's important for us to mourn as a community. It's important for us to share stories as a community so that we can fight this as a community too, and I hope you'll help us fight this. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Just a quick acknowledgement of an error I made last time around. The, the ABA events trip to Cuba with me will be running in the fall of 2018, not 2017 as I said last time. So now you have a whole year to decide whether you want to go see toadies and trogans with me in beautiful Cuba. Until then you can check out the rest of our ABA events including rallies in Florida and Hawaii, a sparrow workshop in Arizona, and the big safari to Tanzania. There are a lot of possibilities to convert with us, check it all out at events.aba.org. A special shout-out to Lauren Merlo from Wilmington, Delaware, just down the road from the ABA's headquarters in Delaware City, who recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason. Thanks, Lauren. You can go to aba.org slash join. Tell them the podcast sent you. Join or renew before the end of the month. That's July 30th, 2017, and you'll be entered in a drawing to win one of five signed copies of Pete Dunn's new book. That's Birds of Prey, Hawks, Eagles, Falcons, and Vultures of North America. Executive producer of the American Birding Podcast and president of the aba is jeffrey gordon technical production is by john lowry with help from david hartley and greg niece you can find us online at aba.org on facebook at facebook.com slash birders and on twitter at aba not to be confused with the alberta beekeepers association which has been serving the interests of the beekeepers of alberta since 1933 which is actually pretty impressive Though in researching them, I did know that they recently changed their name to the Alberta Beekeepers Commission, no doubt frustrated with all the ABA usurpers out there, but now that means that they're American Bird Conservancy's problem. Sorry about that, Mike Parr. If you've made it this far, why not go one step further and leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your comments give us valuable feedback and they help people find us. Thanks for that. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.